0: we'll turn with me to Matthew 11 and we are going to begin the final part of this chapter verses 25 to 30 so let's read those verses first at that time Jesus said I praise you father lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants yes father For this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I've had the privilege of spending hours and hours over the past three years in the study of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I hope that you've enjoyed it so far. In fact, I didn't even realize it had been that long until I looked back and found out that I started this study, that we started this in March of 2020, uh, right as uh, COVID was starting. And uh, in fact, if you recall, for several months I taught the class online uh, using Zoom, but I am so thankful that those days are over and we're back where we can see each other face to face and interact with one another as we go through this study. And after more than three years of study, we have now come to Matthew 1125 25 to 30, which many Bible teachers and commentators refer to as Jesus' invitation or the, the Savior's tender invitation or Jesus' personal invitation. Uh, This is one of the most well-known passages in Matthew's Gospel, particularly verses 28 to 30. So we want to understand exactly what Jesus is saying here as he calls for sinners to come to him. Uh, 1 Timothy 1.15 says Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was the purpose of his incarnation. Christ came to earth to save sinners, to save them from God's wrath, his judgment from sin, from hell. And Jesus expressed this purpose of the incarnation when he said the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. That was his purpose, salvation. That's the message of Christianity, salvation through Jesus Christ. Now this certainly expresses the heart of God. If, if we go back to the Old Testament, we find that even as far back as the prophet Isaiah, God was giving an invitation to people to be saved. In Isaiah 42, verses 22 to 25, it says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in Yahweh are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. In Yahweh, all the seed of Israel will be justified and will boast. That's an invitation. That's the heart of God, a heart of salvation. In Isaiah 55, 1-3, we find another invitation. It says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money. And without cost, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight your soul in richness. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that your soul may live and I will cut an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful, loving kindnesses of David. Uh, God says, come. There's no charge, no price. Just come and eat freely. And then you go all the way to the end of the Bible. In Revelation 22:17, we find these words, the spirit and the bride say come. And let the one who hears say come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes to receive the water of life without cost. So from the Old Testament all the way to Revelation, God is always inviting people to come to salvation. And we find that this is this was the character of our Lord also. Uh, Jesus was and is God incarnate, so we should expect him to carry on the same effort. In in John six thirty five, after just feeding the multitude with bread and fish, he says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. Uh, and so he calls men and women to come to him and believe. And by the way, you'll note that that verse from that verse, that coming to Christ and believing in Christ are synonymous. Uh, he's saying, when Jesus says, come, he's saying, believe on me. I am bread, I am water. Uh, we find the same thing in John 7, 37 and 38. Now on the last day, the great, great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So there's that same equation. Coming is believing. In John 8:12, he says, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says, follow me, for I'm not only bread and water, I'm light. And then in chapter 11, as he's gathered with Mary and Martha and the others who were brokenhearted over the death of Lazarus, He says to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. So when we put it all together, he says, come to me, for I am the bread of life, I'm living water, I'm the light of light, I'm the resurrection and the life. And coming is believing and believing is coming. Now, those are beautiful invitations, but I don't think you'll find any other invitation in Scripture that is more lovely than what we find here in Matthew 11:25 25 to 30. Uh, it's truly a great passage. Uh, twice in this passage, in verse 28, and again in verse 29, he says that he will give you rest and that you will find rest. That's, there's an essential question there. What is it? Uh, we can't understand the invitation unless we understand what the rest is. We don't know what it is that Jesus is calling people to unless we define that term rest. So what is it? Well, we'll define it when we get to it. Okay. Uh, but first we have to go through verses 25 to 27. Uh, so let's get started on those. But in order to understand verses 28 to 30, we have to understand the context in which Jesus gave this invitation. As I told you before, in chapters 11 and 12, Matthew is recording for us various responses to Jesus. So far, we have studied the responses of doubt, of criticism, and indifference. And I told you at the end of each chapter, Matthew inserts this passionate invitation from Jesus for a positive response to himself. And here in this first invitation, Jesus begins With a prayer of praise to God for how He has sovereignly granted understanding of His truth to infants and to His Son. So let's begin with verses 25 and 26, and we see praise for God's sovereignty in salvation. Praise for God's sovereignty in salvation. Read those two verses again. He says, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Notice that first phrase in verse 25, at that time. The question that immediately hits us as we read this is what time? When did Jesus pray this prayer and give this invitation? Well, it could be the very moment of time that he pronounced doom and judgment on the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum for their rejection of him and his message. It could have been at that very time that Jesus turned immediately and gave an invitation to his listeners. It's also possible that he gave these similar teachings on many other occasions during his Galilean ministry. And so it's possible that in a more general sense, as that period of ministry was coming to a climax when all of the various reactions to Jesus were starting to crystallize that he prayed this prayer and gave this invitation. By the time that all of the evidence had been presented that he was the Messiah, when there was no other possible conclusion than that he was God incarnate, the the Christ, the Messiah, that may have been the time that he gave this statement. He has sent out the twelve disciples throughout Galilee, and according to Luke 10.1, he also appointed seventy others to go out by pairs to all of the other places that he was planning to go. So there have been 82 people sent out and they're proclaiming the message and now they come back and while they report all the marvelous miracles they were able to perform and the demons they cast out, the sad truth is that the vast majority of the people in Galilee had rejected him and his message. And so it may have been at that time when knowing their full rejection, He then gives a personal invitation to any who will hear. He knows that the nation has turned its back on him. He knows that it is willfully denying its Messiah, but he still offers a personal invitation to those who are bearing heavy burdens and seeking rest, and so he calls them to come to him for that rest. So whether it was immediately on the heels of the former speech of judgment, or whether it was simply in the general time context of the Galilean ministry and the crystallizing of its opposition, it fits in either way. Uh, We don't know which one but both fit into the same basic chronology. And it's as if he says, even if the whole nation turns their back on me, my arms are still extended to those who are weary and heavy laden. You can still come. Uh, Jesus knew the attitude was going to come to a full rejection on a national scale and yet he reaches out to those who wish to come. The early days of popularity had passed. Uh, Opposition has formed itself, but in the midst of all of it, the Lord is still tenderly giving his invitation. And notice that right next to a cursing of great judgment comes an invitation of equally amazing tenderness. Uh, The last passage in this one, seen side by side, speak of the heart of God. Uh, He's a God of justice and judgment and wrath, and yet he's also a God of love and grace and mercy. And his prayer and invitation that he gives here were not private. Uh, They're not muttered under his breath so that only one or two people closest to him could hear it. This is an open public prayer and invitation to salvation. He calls people to come personally to him. Now as Jesus begins, notice how he starts. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Why does he do that? Because very basic to any presentation of the gospel or any call for people to come to Christ is a recognition that all responses, negative and positive, are ultimately under the sovereign control of God. Salvation is a provision of the Lord of heaven and earth and not a result of man's wisdom, uh, not as a result of man's plans or his purposes or power. In other words, in any invitation to believe the gospel there must be a recognition that God is the one who must be praised because he is the one who was determinative and as to what happens. So Jesus recognizes the sovereignty of God. I'm sure that you have wondered many times and have even been emotionally bothered by the fact that many of your loved ones and close friends have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And you should be because after all Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem because of the Jews' rejection of him as their Messiah. Yet on the other hand, Jesus is here saying, Father, I praise you that everything is going according to your plan. Even though the majority of people are rejecting me, your plan is still working out. And he's not frustrated at all, and that should be our attitude as well. Uh, Whenever you go into any kind of a situation where you present Christ, You ought to believe in your heart without a shadow of a doubt that God is sovereign, is the sovereign behind everything. So, whatever takes place is entirely within his will, his purposes, and his control. Satan cannot frustrate his plans. The world cannot frustrate his plans. And an individual, the person you're witnessing to, cannot frustrate his plans. Man's rejection of Christ proves their failure, not God's. John MacArthur expresses the thought this way in his commentary on this passage. He writes, God's sovereignty should be the foremost thought in the mind of every witnessing believer. We should remember with confidence that his plan is always on course and that even the most unrepentant, wicked, vindictive, and cynical rejection of our testimony does not alter God's timetable or thwart his purpose. Our responsibility is simply to make our witness faithful. It's God's responsibility alone to make it effective, end quote. So Jesus praises God that the plan is his and it's working out as it seemed good in the Father's sight. You know, that ought to give us great confidence in our witnessing. Uh, If I felt that someone's reception of the gospel and whether or not they got saved was based on how perfect or imperfect my gospel presentation was, that would drive me out of my mind. And and I know a lot of Christians who think that way and their answer is, well, I don't wanna mess it up, so I'm not gonna share the gospel with anyone. I I don't wanna be to blame if they don't accept it. But that's wrong. God is the one who sovereignly determines who receives the gospel message not us. And so with the affirmation that the Father is in control, Jesus then lays out his specific calls for praise uh, is because God has hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and has revealed them to infants. In other words, God has hidden these truths from those who because of their self-righteousness think that they are wise and intelligent, and instead he's made them clear and understandable to those who are humble and dependent like infants. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God doesn't grant salvation to those who are smart enough to figure it out. And I'm particularly glad that no one is shut out because they're stupid or dumb. Uh, because that means that the gospel is understandable by children and everyone else who is humble. Uh, but he hides it from the proud and the arrogant who think that they are wise and intelligent. James four six says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, don't misinterpret this to mean that smart people can't get saved. Uh, that's how some people have interpreted this statement. Uh, They take this verse to mean, you've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. In other words, the smarter you are, the more trouble you're in, uh, because God just doesn't want any smart people in heaven. Uh, That's not at all what it's saying. Uh, The Apostle Paul was a brilliant, highly educated scholar, and he didn't forsake his intelligence when he became a Christian. But he stopped relying on his intelligence to discern and understand spiritual and divine matters. You see, it's not intelligence, it's intellectual pride that shuts people out of the kingdom. Uh, intelligence is a gift from God, but when it is perverted by pride, it becomes a barrier to God because trust is in the gift rather than the giver. Psalm 138.6 says, For Yahweh is high, yet he sees the lowly, but the one who exalts himself he knows from afar. So let's dig a little deeper on what verse 25 is saying. First of all, look at the term, these things. We have to know what it is that he's hidden. What are these things? Well, it certainly wouldn't be mathematics, and it wouldn't be science and history. It certainly wouldn't be worldly wisdom and all that, because those aren't, things aren't hidden from the wise and the prudent, uh, and certainly aren't revealed to babies, Uh, So what are these things? I think the best answer is found in Acts 1-3. It talks about Jesus teaching the disciples, and it says, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over 40 days, and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about, the things pertaining to the kingdom, which were the same things he always talked about. Uh, He always talked about the things pertaining to the kingdom, both before the cross and after his resurrection. He continued to talk about the things pertaining to the kingdom, The, the teachings of Jesus about God, righteousness, salvation, his messiahship, lordship, saviorhood, and about obedience and submission. So these things refers to the teachings of Jesus about everything in God's kingdom, deep, eternal, spiritual truths. You say, oh, wait a minute, are you saying that deep, eternal spiritual truths are not available to the educated and the wise? It's only available to infants? That's right. That Jesus says, praise you, God, that you put down human wisdom and reasoning. I think Paul explained it well in 1 Corinthians 2. Over there he says in verses 9 and 10, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him, but to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. You see, the eye can't see him, the ear can't hear him. It's not empirically or objectively available, and it has not entered into the heart of man. That's the subjective area. It has, it's not externally perceivable. It's not internally perceivable. The things pertaining to the kingdom are not available through external perception or internal rationalization. So, how are they available to us? God revealed them through the Spirit, he says, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And then in verse 14, Paul says, But a natural man does not accept. the depths of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually examined. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, he says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's a stumbling block. It's absolutely foolishness to them. So then, what is Jesus saying back in our text in Matthew? He's saying these things regarding the kingdom are hidden from people who think they can discover the truth with their intelligence alone. They're hidden from those who are dependent on their wisdom and their intelligence. They're hidden from people who imagine that truth can be known through the human mind. No amount of evidence is sufficient to convince the confirmed unbeliever. Over in John 12, the apostle says of such people that although Jesus had done many signs Before them, they still were not believing in him so that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke. Lord, who has believed I report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart and return and I heal them. Now in Jesus' day, That was especially applicable to the scribes and the Pharisees who closed their minds to the revelation of God in Christ because they thought that they'd already attained salvation through their human wisdom. They would read the scriptures, but they relied more on the human wisdom that their ancient rabbis had written in the Talmud. And because in their rebellion they refused to believe, God hardened their hearts so they could not believe. Jesus' statement does not mean that God has withheld the truth from smart people. It just means that every person who thinks he's so smart he doesn't need it is doomed. And if you think you're smart, so smart that you don't need the truth and you willfully reject it, then God will then close your mind to it once for all. Notice what we read in John 12, 37. But though he had done so many signs before them, they still were not believing in him. They had the evidence, but they wouldn't believe. So verse 39 says, for this reason, they could not believe. You see, it went from being a personal choice to reject to a divine judicial affirmation of that. We see this all the time today. People believe they're so wise and intelligent that they refuse to believe the Bible to be true and inspired by God. They claim that science has disproven it. They refuse to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. They refuse to believe that he was and is the son of God. They refuse to believe that his death was the satisfactory atonement for the sin of everyone who will ever believe in him. They refuse to believe that he rose again from the dead. They refuse to believe he's coming again. And when they fully understand the gospel yet refuse to believe it, there eventually comes a time when God confirms them in that and then they cannot believe. Listen to what Hebrews 6, 4-6 says about them. For in the case of those once having been enlightened and having tasted of the heavenly gift and having become partakers of the Holy Spirit and having tasted the good word of God and the power of the ages to come and having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame." That is the biblical definition of an apostate. Someone who has complete understanding of the truth of the gospel, has experienced the blessings which come with being associated with true followers of Christ, have seen and understood That Jesus is the Christ, the only way to God. And yet turn their back and walk away from that truth. They cannot be renewed to repentance. Those verses are not talking about someone being a believer and losing their salvation. If that were true, it would be teaching they could never be saved again. Now that passage is saying that it is unbelievers who are in danger of losing salvation in the sense of losing the opportunity to ever to receive it. So in our text in Matthew, Jesus is referring to wisdom and intelligence that is corrupted and perverted by pride. He is thanking the Father that intellectual power is not necessary for salvation. But he recognizes that intellectual pride keeps men from salvation. If you could get saved by your intellect, it wouldn't be to the glory of God, would it? It would be to your glory. Jesus is not condemning wisdom and intelligence. If you're intelligent, God made you that way. Rather, he is condemning intellectual pride, and he is saying that you don't have to be intelligent to get saved. In fact, in Mark ten fifteen, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So let me sum it up this way. It is not intelligence which shuts people out of the kingdom. It is intellectual pride. And it's not intelligence which gets one into the kingdom. It's humility. Intelligence is not the issue. Intellectual pride is the issue. And the people who rejected Jesus in the face of all the evidence that he was the Messiah were too proud, too self-seeking, too egotistical, too busy justifying themselves by their own self-achievement. So Jesus says, Father, I praise you that intelligence isn't the issue. No one needs to be intelligent to get saved. And I praise you that you've hidden these truths from those who are filled with intellectual pride because that wouldn't glorify you. But I praise you, I also praise you, that you have revealed these things to infants because that does glorify you and that lets the least of men have access to your kingdom. Now, who are the infants? The word here, refers to a baby that's still nursing. In fact, in Matthew 21, 16, Jesus quotes Psalm 8, 2, and says, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself. Those are they're two different terms, but they're synonymous. Uh, so here in chapter 11, verse 25, he's using this term which refers to a baby that's so young it has not yet acquired wisdom and intelligence. In fact, it doesn't even have self-awareness yet. Uh, it's the term used in 1 Corinthians three one and Hebrews 5.13 of infants who drink milk and not solid food. It's used in 1 Corinthians 13.11 of those who babble like infants because they can't yet speak. It's used in Ephesians 4.14 of infants who are helpless. So we have a helpless child, a baby who who can't yet speak, can't eat solid food, still nursing in his mother's breast, and there's one term that can best sum up that kind of person, and it is this, they're completely dependent. An infant is completely dependent in terms of its needs. If you just neglect or abandon a baby, it will die because it's totally dependent for others to care for its needs. So then, who are the ones who can enter into salvation. They're the dependent, not the independent, the dependent. They're the humble, not the proud, the humble. They are those who are humbly confessing their dependence on God. They are helpless and they recognize it. They're empty and they know it. They're nothing and they're aware of it. They're deeply aware they have no resources in life and they turn to Christ in utter dependency. You have to come to the point where you abandon all of your own resources. So the comparison between the wise and the infants is not a comparison between smart people and dumb people. It is not a comparison between educated and uneducated people. It is a comparison between those who think that by their own intellect that they can save themselves and those who know they can't. And are totally dependent upon God's grace. It is grace, it's a grace and works comparison. It is a God and man comparison. So the prosperous, self-sufficient inhabitants of the Galilean towns who were relying on their own works righteousness never did understand. But here and there, less sophisticated people deeply stressed over their own emptiness Humble, broken, they were open to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And that was good in God's sight. Why? Because that glorifies God, and that is the supreme reason for everything in the universe. It wouldn't glorify God if the conceited had entered the kingdom. In Proverbs 22:4, it says, The reward of humility, the fear of Yahweh, is riches glory. And life. And so, to begin with, in any legitimate invitation, there must be an affirmation that humility is where it begins. You remember how Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5:3? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means a begging spirit. It's a term used to refer to a beggar cringing in a dark corner with his head hung in shame, holding out his hand, begging. The poverty spoken of there is a word which means abject poverty. Poverty so extreme that the person in that situation can do nothing but beg. He has no resources and he knows it. And he's the one who gets the kingdom. That's exactly the opposite of everything that the Jews had been taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. Further, in verse 4, it says, blessed are those who mourn, those who not only are aware of the brokenness of their spirit, but who are not only aware of the poverty of their soul, but they mourn over their condition. And then in verse 5, blessed are the lowly, the meek, those who are humble. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They know they don't have it, but they hunger and thirst for it. And so Jesus says, show me the man in the corner who knows he has no resources who begs for them, who weeps over his lack of resources, who's humble before a holy God, who hungers for a righteousness he knows he doesn't have, and I'll show you someone who's going to get into the kingdom. God has revealed these things concerning his kingdom to those kinds of people. And so our invitation begins with being an invitation to the humble and dependent people. That's why it's so difficult. To reach the superstars, the wealthy, the highly educated, the people who think that they have achieved all that is necessary for this life. And by comparison, it's so easy to reach those who are the broken down and outers. In Isaiah 57, 15, there's this marvelous verse. Listen to it. For thus says the one high and lifted up who dwells forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the crushed and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the crushed. Isn't that great? Man worships his own intellect and his own reason and all he has achieved and God who is exalted and holy is with the crushed and lowly of spirit. I'm sure you recall the story that Jesus told in Luke 18, 11 to 14 of the Pharisee and the tax collector who went up to the temple to pray and the Pharisee stood up and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. You see, he thought he was good enough. He had intellectual pride. He had religious pride. He could attain it on his own. He says, I'm not like other people. I'm superior. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And then Jesus concludes by saying, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's no place in God's kingdom for pride. It's only for the humble. It's only for the infants, the babies, those who are completely dependent. And then Jesus concludes this opening prayer of praise by saying in verse 26, Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. In other words, Father, you're well pleased with this gospel of grace for those who are humble and lowly because it brings glory to you. God loves to help the help the humble and the repentant because they know that they are helpless. He's pleased when they come to him for help because that honors his grace and gives him glory. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 26 and 27. This is so encouraging to me. He he wrote, For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. I know I'm one of the foolish, weak things he's chosen, and I'm so grateful for that. But it's also an encouraging passage for those who are wise and mighty and noble, because it doesn't say there are not any of them. It just says there are not many of them. So if you find yourself in one of those categories, God still has room for a few of you. Okay? Well, Jesus continues his prayer of praise to God the Father. He now turns from praising the Father for his sovereignty and salvation, and he now praises the Father for his revelation of himself. Uh, of himself to in his son. Verse 27. For all things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son, and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. Now that's a marvelous verse. That is a verse that is profound and deep. Basically, this verse is a commentary on verse 25 expanding on the truth that God has revealed these things of the kingdom to infants. What he's saying here is, look, look look, guys, all truth is bound up in the Father and the Son and the only people who know it are the people to whom the Son reveals it. The idea here is that no one can know anything about salvation unless God's Son reveals it to him. The idea uh, uh, it, it's not available to the human mind. You see, verse 25 talks about a man's attitude. There needs to be a brokenness and humility. This verse talks about, and verse 27 talks about God's part. There has to be a sovereign revelation. Did I say verse 20? Yes, verse 27. Now, let's look at the verse and just take it phrase by phrase and see if we can get a grasp on what our Lord's saying. The first statement is simple. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Now there are two things in that statement that indicate what this statement is meant to say. It is meant to say that Jesus is God. It is a statement of his deity. It is a statement of the essence of the heart of the kingdom gospel that Jesus is God and that's the heart of our faith. That is why if any man denies that Christ is God in the flesh, he's accursed. He has violated the basis of the gospel. The gospel begins with the fact that Jesus is God, and that is said two ways in that phrase. The first way way is by the phrase, my father. This is the first time that Matthew records that Jesus has said that. He has said father, and he has said our father, but up until now, Matthew has not recorded that he said my father. Now we know he made those statements, has made statements that clearly said that, because in John 5.18, which is in terms of chronological time, occurred before this passage in Matthew, we're we're told that for this reason, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Uh, So he was making statements about God being his father. And the people clearly understood what he meant, even though the cults today, such as the JWs, deny that. Uh, for example, in John 10:30, he said, "I and the Father are one." And the JWs come along and they say, "Well, that means one in attitude and purpose and goal and direction." But that doesn't make any sense when you look at the next few verses. Verse 31 says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And verse 32, Jesus asked them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? And they answered him, verse 33, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy and because you being a man, make yourself God. So they understood what he meant. He meant that he was God. Down in verse 38 he says, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and continue knowing that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And verse 39 says that they were seeking again to seize him. What he was claiming was absolute equality with the Father, and there was no question in their minds what he was saying. And in our text, in here in Matthew 11, verse 27, it's the same thing. The phrase, my Father, brings us to an intimacy, a new development of the uniqueness of Christ's relationship to God insofar as the revelation of Matthew is concerned. So the first statement about his deity is the intimacy of that phrase, my Father. The second one is the statement, all things have been handed over to me. What does that term, all things, mean? Exactly what it says, all things. At some point in pre-existent eternity, the Father committed all authority, all sovereignty, all truth, and all power to the Son. And at some point, we were handed over to him too. And however that happened in eternity past is beyond us. But the fact stands that all things are delivered to the Son. Jesus summed it up in Matthew 28:18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We already learned in Matthew that he had authority over Satan, demons, illness, the elements, body, soul, life, and death. He had authority to save, to forgive sin, to pass judgment, all authority over all things, including earth, heaven, hell, men, angels, devils, time, life, death, eternity, salvation, damnation, grace, judgment, deliverance from sin, victory over temptation, overcoming the world, communion with God. Everything, everything pertaining to divine life was committed to Christ. Everything pertaining to the universe is under his sovereignty. So when Jesus says that all things have been handed over to me by my Father, he is saying, I have an intimate union with the Father, and I possess all of the sovereignty which God possesses. This is a statement of his deity. Now, having said that, he goes on to say, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Now, that's a very significant statement because if the Son is God, then no one can truly know the Son but the Father because only God can know God and vice versa. So if the Son knows God the Father, then the Son must be God, because only God can know God. Do you know if the JW's Bible, does that differ from what we're reading here? I don't. Uh, it, Norm's nodding real strongly up behind you.
1: Yeah, the New World Translation, yeah.
0: Yeah. To get yeah. By saying that Jesus is not the father. Yeah. Yeah. We we don't we can't understand God, can we? Anybody in here claim to understand God completely? Our puny brains can't handle it. But Jesus says, "I'm God because I understand the Father. I possess all the unlimited sovereignty of God. Therefore, only the Father really knows me." That's a smack in the face of the self-righteous religions of that day because they thought they knew God. They they thought they had it all figured out. Jesus says, no, only the Father knows me. And not only that, that the Father knows me, it's proof that I'm God. Uh, You say, well, what is that saying? It's saying that all of the knowledge of divine truth is bound up in the Trinity. It's a mutual perception by the Father and the Son and, of course, the Holy Spirit. It's locked into the Trinity, and no man with his limited finite resources can ever perceive that knowledge. It is unavailable. And that's why philosophy is a fruitless, vain effort. That's why man-made religion is equally fruitless and vain, because all revelation, all content, all truth about God and his kingdom is locked up in the Trinity. So how do we ever get it? Notice the end of verse 27. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. In other words, the only way we'll ever know is by a revelation by the Son, a revelation from God himself. It's a very simple verse in one sense, and yet it's so profound in another sense we can't even fathom it. What Jesus is saying here is that spiritual infants who know nothing, understand nothing, have no resources, are the only ones who can truly perceive what only God can know of eternal truth locked up in the infinite mind of the Trinity. How so? Because God chooses to reveal it to them. So then salvation is founded on that combination of a humble heart and an infinite God revealing himself to that humble heart. And so here you have the two elements that are always balanced in any proper perspective of salvation. You have man's part, a prepared, ready, and open heart of humility, and God's part, his sovereign, gracious revelation. Ultimately, then, Truth is locked up in the trinity and it can never be known unless the sun reveals it. Look around at all, sometime at all the people of the, practicing the various religions of the world, busily practicing all the rituals and rites of their particular religion, carrying around their little prayer books and beads and headscarves and shawls and habits and robes and candles and all the accoutrements of their group, and none of them know the sun who alone can reveal the truth of God. None of them. It's all emptiness. All those big temples and mosques and synagogues and cathedrals and pagodas, whatever it may be, it's fruitless because only the Son can reveal God's truth. And he doesn't reveal it to anyone whose heart is not humble and who does not recognize they have no resources and no answers. So you have humility and revelation. Martin Luther said, quote, here the bottom falls out of all merit, all powers and abilities of reason, or the free will men dream of, and it all counts as nothing before God. Christ must do and must give everything, End quote. That's why John wrote in John 1:18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. We can't see God. God is locked up with Christ in that marvelous relationship. And if we are to know it, it's because God reveals, not because we perceive. God has to break into the blackness of our stupidity and can only do that in the heart that is in a heart that is humble and broken before Him. So salvation then in its foundation, is a meeting of a humble, dependent, open, helpless heart with a revelation given by a gracious, sovereign God. That's the basis. Well, we're out of time, so we're going to stop. And the next time that I speak, I will continue with uh, this and finish up this and then move on into the next section. I will... uh, I will not be teaching next week because I'll be preaching in the morning services, uh, but Frank will be here to teach you. And uh, you have any idea what you're going to be speaking on, Frank? We're going to continue in the letters in Revelation chapter 2. Okay, alright, Revelation chapter 2, alright, anything, any other comments or questions? Go ahead, ahead. ahead. i will going to decide which one of you is going to ask not knowing. I remember when it hurt my back in North Carolina, in 75, I went to a chiropractor. And he and I got to talk about the Lord. He goes, you know, I had a patient. And I would adjust adjusted her a times a week because she lived in pain all the time. I said, OK.